0: Tech Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English, with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 546 for the 11th of June, 2017. This week, have you ever thought about abandoning Windows or Mac OS? For most people, Linux would be a viable option, but there's a lot of inertia. Even the most casual photographers generally recognize the need to edit images, and while Adobe is a good choice for most people, it's not the only choice. In short circuits, if your new Wi-Fi router isn't giving you the performance boost you expected, I have a couple of suggestions to improve it. Apple has disappointed graphics professionals with some of their recent computers. The new iMac Pro is a powerhouse, but at a price. In spare parts, only on the website, Waze, a highway information sharing application is partnering with an emergency call clearinghouse to provide more timely information to motorists and emergency personnel. Talent Unleashed is looking for outstanding technology startups around the world. And Microsoft has announced the winners and finalists for its enormous annual Partner of the Year program. Let's call this Linux is the future, and probably always will be. Esperanto was going to be the language of the future. Maybe it still is, but it always seems to be in the future. In the 1940s, Brazil was described as being a country of the future, but the tagline was, and it always will be. Clean and plentiful energy from nuclear fusion is said to be the future, and it's likely to remain in the future for a long time. This has also been applied to soccer, three-year college degree programs, hydrogen as fuel for our automobiles, and Linux. As much as I want Linux to succeed because it's inexpensive and open source, two things I like it always seems to be out there somewhere in the future. There are good reasons for this, among them, resistance to change, the inability to easily run common Windows and Mac OS applications, and, not the least, the dizzying array of Linux distributions. Is Ubuntu better, or should I choose Linux Mint? What about Zorin and Elementary, or Suse, or any of the literally hundreds of others? If you're skeptical about that, hundreds of others, hop over to Wikipedia and take a look at the list of Linux distributions. You'll find a link to Wikipedia on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. Ubuntu is undoubtedly the best-known distribution because it has received a lot of promotion. It's a good choice for those who are new to Linux, but it's certainly not the only choice for newbies. Bear in mind that Linux is just an operating system kernel. By itself, it's useless. To be a functional operating system, Linux needs additional applications that are provided by the many distros. I've used Ubuntu on several computers over the years. It's based on the Debian distro, and even Microsoft used Ubuntu when it ported Linux binaries to Windows 10 so that Linux can be enabled within Windows. But there are others. Linux Mint is based on Ubuntu, which I noted previously is based on Debian. It's considered to be the primary competitor for Ubuntu. Many experts say that Mint is the best option for new users because it was designed intentionally to be easy for new users to set up. But Zorin calls itself a replacement for Windows and Mac OS. It looks and acts a lot like Windows. If you're a security and privacy buff, maybe Tails would be a good choice. A primary objective is keeping the identity of the user private. Edward Snowden selected that Linux distro in part because it uses Tor to maintain privacy. The underlying distro is Debian. Elementary Linux also looks a lot like the Mac OS because of its Pantheon desktop environment. Deepin Linux also emulates the Mac OS interface. It's a Chinese product that seems to be aimed at new Linux users. CentOS 7 is based on Red Hat Linux it's one of the most common commercial Linux distros. For that reason, it's probably a better choice if you're setting up a server, but less than ideal for most desktop users. And last in my tiny list of Linux distros is KX Studio. It's designed for audio and video production, and it supports audio plugins and MIDI instruments. In other words, it's a digital audio workstation disguised as a Linux desktop. When you set up Linux, the desktop might look a lot like Windows. Or it might look a lot like the Mac OS. Or it might just look like Linux. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows the taskbar or dock. Taskbar if you're a Windows person, dock if you're a Mac person, on the left. It can also be placed on the right, at the top, or down at the bottom. The Ubuntu Linux control panel will be understandable to anybody who has used either a Windows or Mac computer. So will the file manager. And most Linux distros include a notification panel that lets you know when system updates are available. LibreOffice, commonly used under Windows and Mac OS, is also very common on Linux. It has an interface that resembles the pre-ribbon versions of Microsoft Office. It is the best Office suite for Linux and has been downloaded millions of times for Windows machines. Without spending anything, users of Windows, Mac OS, or Linux can have a highly functional Office suite that can read and write Microsoft Office documents. When you're looking for applications, most versions of Linux provide access to some sort of store like function. There is a persistent myth that no applications are available for Linux systems, but that's simply not true. In addition to LibreOffice, there's OpenOffice, GNOME Office, Caligra Suite, and WPS Office. While there's nothing that matches the scope of Adobe applications on Linux, there is no shortage of applications that can be used to edit various kinds of media, from GIMP for photographs, Audacity for audio files, and several video editors such as OpenShot, PTV, KDN and Live, and Lightworks. And there are some typesetting and publishing applications such as Scribus, Markup, and even LibreOffice Writer. It's probably more than enough for small and home office users. Several major browsers are available for Linux, from Chrome and Opera to Firefox and Epiphany. For email, there's Thunderbird, Geary, Evolution, Kmail, and Clause Mail. If you want to watch videos or listen to music, there's the VLC Media Player, Totem Video, and Vocal. Plenty of good text editors, too, such as gedit and Kate. So maybe Linux should stop being the operating system of the future and start being the operating system of the present. If you'd like to give it a try, you'll find links to several of the popular Linux distros on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. Many of the Linux distros will run as an application under Windows, or you can boot to the CD and run it that way for testing. That's a good way to evaluate the look and feel of the version, but don't expect it to run quickly. Distros can also be installed to dual boot with Windows, so you get to choose the operating system you want to use when you start the computer. One thing every professional photographer and every serious amateur photographer knows is this. What comes out of the camera can be improved. That's not a new concept that came about because of digital photo editing. The old professionals often spent as much time in the darkroom as they did in the field. Today it's just a lot easier, and anybody can do it. My favorite is Adobe Lightroom for organization and overall image correction. Often, that's all a photograph needs, tweaking the exposure or the color balance, darkening an overly bright area, fixing a blemish on a face or in a landscape, When more exacting changes are needed, Lightroom can push the image over to Photoshop for final editing. Photoshop and Lightroom aren't free, but they are reasonable. For $10 a month, you have access to both applications, but maybe you're looking for something less expensive. Well, you can still have Lightroom on your phone for free. The iOS and Android apps do work better if they're connected to an Adobe account that has a Photoshop subscription, but even the standalone apps are impressive. You can make a lot of common changes to photographs on your phone. The most common, probably, is cropping. You may try to get the best composition in the camera. Sometimes you'll get it exactly right, but more often you'll realize that the image could be improved by tighter cropping, or maybe a bit of slight rotation to get the horizon straight, or even changing the aspect ratio from what the camera produced to something more dramatic. These functions can all be done in your phone, in the free version of Lightroom. Color and contrast improvements are also pretty common. The free Lightroom phone app handles this, too, along with creative lighting changes, conversion to black and white, adding effects, and enhancing the image's overall detail. Sometimes adding a vignette to an image will make the center of attention more obvious. The vignette darkens the corners of the image. This function is also available in the free version for your Android or iOS phone. Applying a gradient to an image is one function that is not included in the free versions of Lightroom. To use gradients, you do need to sign into your Adobe account. Despite the capabilities that Lightroom offers on a phone, I'm more comfortable importing pictures into the desktop application and working on them there. If $10 a month is in your budget, you will not go wrong with Adobe's Creative Cloud program for photographers. But if you prefer a free application, there's always the GIMP, that stands for the GNU Image Manipulation Program. It's a Linux application that was ported to Windows and Mac OS systems many years ago. There's even a plug-in that makes it look somewhat like Photoshop. You may also want to take a look at the online Pixlr Express. It requires Adobe Flash, so you'll need to install that, but it's free. There's also a version for phones. and You'll have to put up with advertisements that appear on the page but it is a surprisingly complete application with the ability to add layers, make sophisticated adjustments and use effect filters. When Google acquired photo software maker Nick a few years ago, it also acquired Snapseed and a free version is available. You can find information about Snapseed on Google's website, but you'll need to visit a download site such as CNET to download it. Regardless of which application you use, take a little extra time with your photos. Sometimes just a few moments work can turn an average image into something spectacular. Short circuits. Have you ever bought a brand new Wi-Fi router expecting it to outperform the old router in every possible way, only to be disappointed when you got it home and installed it? As with real estate, location is critical. A mediocre Wi-Fi router positioned well will outperform a high-quality router positioned poorly. But there's more. Maybe the signal throughout your house has been so bad that you've thought about investing in one of those pricey multi-hotspot devices. Well, unless you have a palatial estate, you probably don't need it. You should, though, select a router that operates in both the 2.4 GHz and 5 GHz bands. Specifications for the 2.4 GHz band are old, and they weren't designed very well. This is made even worse by people who think they're doing the right thing by setting up their routers to use a channel other than 1, 6, or 11. Now that seems reasonable, but using any other channel makes everybody's performance worse. Here's why. Let's say you choose channel 4 because nobody's using it. You see, everybody's on 1, 6, and 11. So you're going to put your signal on channel 4. The problem with doing that comes from the width of the signal, which will now interfere with devices on channel 1 and channel 6. Additionally, your device on channel 4 will have to contend with interference from devices on channels 1 and 6. Eventually most devices will run in the 5 GHz band which was better designed and new technology allows routers to negotiate spacing so they don't interfere with each other. If you have a smart television it probably communicates in the 5 GHz band as do most Wi-Fi enabled cell phones and tablets. You could spend $400 or more for a multi-device system but really isn't it better to spend less and then pick the best placement for your router? A decent router in the $100 to $200 range will probably work just fine for most people. You'll see a picture of my routers set up on the TechBinder Worldwide website this week. It provides more than adequate coverage in the areas where I need it. But if I needed more complete household coverage, there are several things I could do to improve its location. It's important to understand that radio waves are degraded when they pass through structures. Think of driving into a tunnel and losing the radio station you're listening to. Distance is also important. The further you are from the source of the signal, the weaker it'll be. A good router will be able to push an acceptable signal out a couple of hundred feet. It depends on what's between the router and where you want the signal. This means that the best location in the house is the one where you can see the rooms where you want to have a signal. That might mean you place the router in a hallway. Don't put it in a closet on the first floor if you want good coverage on the second floor. That's because the closet walls will absorb some of the signal, and routers tend to put out a better signal down rather than up, so second floor locations are better, or near the ceiling if you're on the first floor. If you have a wireless phone, it probably operates in the 2.4 or 5 gigahertz range, so it's a good idea to keep some separation between those devices. The same goes for electric motors, electronic devices, and anything made of metal. Some routers still have internal antennas, but most manufacturers now put them on the outside and you'll probably have at least two, maybe more. This is not because of the different radio bands. Both the 2.4 GHz and 5 GHz signals use the same antenna. Having more than one allows you to orient them in different ways. One vertical and one horizontal is a good choice. Signals are most efficient when the sending and receiving antennas have the same orientation. Notebook computers almost always have internal antennas that are horizontal. Same with tablets and phones, but you might hold a tablet or phone in a way that it would orient the antenna vertically. The installation you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is on the second floor. That's good. But there are some problems too. Let's consider what's good and what's not so good about the way I've installed my router. First, you'll see that the router is sitting right beside a window. That means I'm providing a great signal for the house across the street at the expense of some areas inside my own house. That's okay. Coverage is fine where I need it. Note that the router has three antennas. They're arranged so that one is vertical, one is horizontal north-south, and one is horizontal east-west. That's about the best arrangement you're going to get. But then look down and to the left. There's a wireless phone just inches from the Wi-Fi antenna. Fortunately, it's an older phone that runs in the 1.9 GHz range, so it really doesn't interfere with the router. It also has Bluetooth, though, which does operate in the 2.4 GHz band, but I don't use Bluetooth with the phone. Directly below the router, there's an optical disk player that's attached to a tablet computer and a hard disk that provides network-attached storage. They could probably be placed better, but as I said... I'm getting decent coverage now. Another problem, the computer's left screen is just inches from the router's antennas, so it's blocking some signal. And last, the cable modem is right on top of the router and positioned so that it blocks some of the signal from the vertical antenna and the north-south horizontal antenna. Although coverage is fine where I need it right now, at least I know where to look if I ever want to improve the coverage. Apple's new iMac Pro introduced this week is clearly intended to win back some graphics professionals who have expressed dismay at some of the company's recent offerings. Entry price for the iMac Pro is $1,800, but if you are a graphics pro, you're going to need more, so then you'll be starting with the $2,300 base price model. It has a 27-inch screen, one built-in. A Graphics Pro is going to need another screen, so figure on another $200, $300, maybe $1200, depending on what kind of screen you need. And you'll probably want to kick the processor up to 4.2 GHz from 3.8. There's another $200. Even at $1800, the computer comes with just 8 GB of RAM. Minimally expand that to 16 GB for $200, but if you want great performance from graphics applications, go to 64GB for an extra $1,400. If you buy the memory from a third party, the same place that Apple buys it from, you'll pay a third to a half of what Apple charges for just the additional RAM. The computer comes with a 2 terabyte Fusion drive, but you'll probably want the faster performance of a solid-state drive, 1 terabyte, 600 bucks extra, 2 terabytes, 1,400 bucks extra. Never mind that you can buy the same disk from Amazon for half the price of just the add-on. So there you are, $5,300 plus whatever you pay for another screen. Now you could save $1,500 or more by obtaining your own disk drive and memory, but then you have to install them. There's no question that this is one amazing computer, one that'll have a lot of people very excited. That excitement carries a very big price tag, though. There is no price tag on spare parts. You'll find it for free, only on the website. This week, Waze, a highway information sharing application, is partnering with an emergency call clearinghouse to provide more timely information to motorists and emergency personnel. Talent Unleashed is looking for outstanding technology startups worldwide, And Microsoft has announced the winners and finalists in its enormous annual Partner of the Year program. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.